podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Today, I am going to be preaching from Matthew. It's funny, the last three times I've spoken, it's been from Matthew. And we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five. So I'm gonna reiterate, because I just spoke two weeks ago from Matthew chapter four. And we skipped over the Beatitudes um, because that was the reading for last week. And Pastor Jade uh, did something a little bit different with Acts chapter six. He felt really strongly like that's where the Lord would have him to speak. But also in our discussion, we felt like it would be better to give a more extended time to the Beatitudes than just one week. Many theologians and, and New Testament scholars believe that it's probably some of, between that and what's written in John 17, the most important words of Jesus that we have in all of scripture. And so we're gonna, at some point, probably later this year, we're gonna give a little more of an extended time, uh, dedicated time to um, the Beatitudes. Guys, I, I'm on Sudafed right now, so I cannot be held accountable for anything that I say, okay? <laughs> I feel real loose. This is great. My wife nor my boss is here, and I have no accountability. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. There are elders on the front row. Yeah. <clears throat> just kidding. Um, a couple of notes just quickly in introduction, then we're gonna read the passage and pray and we'll jump into this message, which once again, I don't think is gonna be really a new message for many of us in the room, but it is something I think is really critical for us in this time. It is the words of Jesus I'm going to preach, so it's, it's critical. Uh, one is just Matthew, a reminder from just two weeks ago, a couple of the things that I shared that I've been learning as I study. Um, Matthew was written, it is the gospel that is written predominantly to the Jewish people. And it's written in a time where they thought when Jesus ascended, and then we have all the stories in the first half of the book of Acts, they thought Jesus was gonna return like in a year or two years, maybe even sooner. They thought it was gonna be really quick. So here we are some, a couple of decades after Jesus, when, after Jesus' ascension, and Matthew's writing this gospel, and he senses living among the people, especially the Jewish people, that they feel like they've almost been hoodwinked, that they feel like, man, have we been gotten again, and that they're becoming apathetic, and that they're beginning to doubt that maybe Jesus really wasn't the Messiah that they, because there were many, many stories of others proclaiming to be the Messiah that were not Jesus. So that would not have been the first time that that had happened. So Matthew's writing his gospel and he's, he's writing it in such a way that confronts all of their predisposed ideas to what the Messiah was gonna be and what they think, even in this time, decades after Christ's ascension, what they expected of him. So Matthew writes a lot of the teaching of Jesus and he writes it very provocatively. And that's the reason for this is because he's writing to people who had received the Torah hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years prior, and they had a very specific understanding of what they thought it meant, how they thought it was to be lived out, and how it would culminate in the Messiah. And almost none of those things ended up being true. 
So the, the primary question that he's asking in this book is how is God going to bring about the world to be the way he wants it and created it to be? And the answer that Matthew gives implicitly is by revealing the kingdom of God ruled by its king, Jesus the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the fulfillment of all of their expectations, all of the promises are fulfilled in Christ. And specifically this section, which is the Sermon on the Mount, we're about a third of the way into the Sermon on the Mount here, we will be in just a second. The Sermon on the Mount is all about discipleship. It's what do we, what do, we do with all of these things that we've been told throughout the ages. And Jesus, of course, he's not really asked that question, but Jesus is responding to the question of how do we engage with the Torah and what kind of people are we supposed to be in the earth? And that, of course, we would know as discipleship. That's what discipleship is. How do we live this life out following Jesus, who we believe is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, and there are three things that are emphasized in Matthew over and over and over again. One, God draws in the least likely to be his disciples. God draws in least, the least likely to be his disciples. Number two, following him will be much more difficult than the disciples thought. Following Jesus will, will force them to, to re-engage everything that they thought they believed about the world, about God, about their role in it, about what the Messiah was gonna look like. And number three, when we follow Jesus, he will inevitably send us back out into the world. And that's where we're gonna spend our time today. When we follow Jesus, he will inevitably lead us back out into the world. So let's read from Matthew chapter five. I'm gonna take a sip of water and we're gonna be in verses 13 through 20. We're gonna to read today. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let us pray this morning <clears throat> that this morning what comes from my mouth would be gospel and not my opinion. Lord, I ask uh, that through the proclamation of your word that your Holy Spirit would touch us and shape us and help us to look more like Christ, empower us to be this salt of the earth, the light of the world that shines in the darkness. 
God, open our spiritual eyes and ears to re-see and re-hear the things that need to be heard and seen fresh. And I pray for empowerment, not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers also as we leave this place. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. One of the things that's difficult about hearing gospel stories and gospel phrases, especially if we've been raised in the church, is that we almost can become so familiar with the words of Jesus that we can quote them before we really understand them at all. I mean, there is this age-old kid's song about being a light and hiding it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Okay, that's all the singing I'm doing today until the doxology. Don't let me forget, Swank family. But it's so easy sometimes to just remember these little cliche phrases of Jesus without truly understanding them. And before we think that anything Jesus ever said was simple, we need to remember that these guys who had walked with him day in and day out were consistently being confounded. And they were consistently going, wait, this doesn't mean this? I mean, in one moment, there is that story where Simon Peter gets it so right and calls Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And not, but the next passage is saying, no, Jesus, messiahs don't do that. And that's, of course, the famous rebuke. So I I think that we have to hear these things. And every time we read the words of Jesus, a good, very simple prayer, a good, simple posture to take is, Jesus, help help me to hear this afresh. Help me to hear these words and not just hear what I've heard before. Not that what you've heard before is necessarily wrong, but we believe that Christ is alive and that through his word, he is working on us and shaping us and forming us. So what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? I think there's a, a few things here. Well, one, before, before I get into that, I just wanna be really clear. In the Greek, this is very clear, and in our English, it's not. But all of the U's, every one of the U's, Y-O-U, in this passage are strong plural use. So this is not Jesus speaking to a disciple or even that small grouping of disciples. Like we need to hear this as a call, as a proclamation over the church that we are the salt of the earth. One, I think we have to recognize that Jesus is not asking them to become salt, but Jesus is saying, you are salt So be salty. And the funny thing is, they haven't done anything yet. They have done nothing. All they've done is the ones that we have recorded in the um, Matthew chapter four that I preached two weeks ago. All we have is them leaving their stuff and starting to follow Jesus. We don't have anything happening yet. We don't have them doing any great exploits. But Jesus is proclaiming from the very beginning that because I have called you and you have followed, Therefore, you are salt. Not because of anything you've done, not because of any miracles you've performed, any messages you have preached, but simply because you have been called, you are salt of the earth. But what does salt do? I mean, primarily, aside from being sprinkled on our sidewalks, uh, which I don't think in Israel, they have that many problems with ice, so I don't know that they use it for that at all. But salt essentially does two things. One, It flavors bland food and it preserves. And I think it's fairly clear 
that though we could appropriate the first definition, the first use of salt, that really what Jesus is saying is that you are called to be the presence that preserves what is good about the world and what is good in the world. That a world that is, uh, that the world is infected by sin and death and decay and that you are called to be a preserving presence, to preserve what God created initially as good. And so that I think is the way that we should hear this. And what that means for us, one, one thing, and I'm getting to this a little earlier, but I think so often we expect that a world that is living in darkness is going to just live as light. And that a world that is bound for decay is just somehow not going to decay. That meat is gonna be hung out and somehow not spoil. I mean, that's, that's the image for those of you who hunt. I mean, how silly would it be to kill a deer, to skin it, to hang it, and to leave it forever and just expect that the next time I come back, it's gonna be ready for me to cook and eat. That our expectations for the world need to be that this world is bound up with sin and death. And apart from the salt of the earth, how can it ever not be bound up with sin and death? Apart from the church and the people of God being who we are called to be, how can we expect anything different of the world? Here's something that's interesting too, and I'm not gonna get too deep into this. I'm just gonna read it and move on for the sake of time. But salt actually itself cannot ever decay Salt cannot ever not be salty except for one condition, that it is mixed with something else and becomes a different compound altogether. That salt as salt, unless it is mixed with other things, cannot ever decay, cannot ever lose its saltiness. So Jesus, there's more to Jesus's command here or his proclamation than I think I've ever realized we are to live near enough for long enough in the world that our saltiness seeps into it as a preserving presence. I mean, I, this is, and for the sake of time, I'm almost foregoing notes here and just going with it. We're just going with it. I told you, I'm blaming it on the Sudafed. So one of the things I've been studying a lot recently as I'm working on a, on a thesis is the early Pentecostal movement. And the early Pentecostals in the early 20th century were birthed out of the holiness and the Wesleyan, the Methodist movement by John Wesley. And one of the things that, that very early on marked them was just how radically hospitable and inclusive they were to other races, to other uh, gender genders. They were one of the first groups in the church to really accept and, and um, utilize women in the church with every position that males did. But almost immediately that changed. Like within the first few years that changed. And one of the products we see is that the, whole, the Pentecostal slash holiness movement that had been so evangelistic and so missional almost flipped a switch and went the other direction in the name of preserving themselves. In the name of holiness, and they, they insulated themselves from the world. And it, it was almost like at the same time that they did that, the missional nature of that branch of the church changed. And I want to convince us this morning 
that we are not called to be insulated from the world. And of course, that doesn't mean we do everything the world does. But when it gets to the point where the only two places you ever interact with non-believers are in the grocery store or the gas station, it's gone a little too far. If we're not doing anything where the world is, if we're not existing in the same spaces, how can we be the salt of the earth? I mean, if, if salt is one millimeter off of the meat, it will not preserve it. Like, think about that. It's not enough to just like live in a neighborhood near people who need Jesus, right? We're, we're speaking metaphorically here, but we have to learn that we are called to be in the earth, in the world without being of it. And that is really difficult. I'm not here to paint a picture that this is so simple. The church has waffled back and forth, oscillated back and forth on this pendulum. And I don't know that we'll ever get it perfectly exactly right with a balance. But I think there is a strong call to us to be less concerned with our own preserved nearness and perfect consecration to God. And I'm gonna get to a passage that speaks to this in just a second in Isaiah 58. And we are called to live in and among the world and trust that as we are drawing on the presence of God, as we are filled with the spirit, that he will preserve us. Amen? Light, we're gonna speak about light briefly and then I'm gonna move on. Throughout the gospels, Jesus is really, other than in this space, Jesus is the only one that's ever called the light. So essentially what Jesus is saying by calling them light is you are in me, and now you have my light. This isn't go and strike a match and light yourself. But as you follow Christ, you are brought into him. His life is put inside of us. And he is calling us to let that light shine. One of the things I read in a commentary this week is just how silly Jesus's words are about covering it up with a bushel. Because you and I, when we think about light, primarily we probably think light bulbs. They didn't have light bulbs, guys. <laughs> the light they had would have been open flame. And anything you put on an open flame is just gonna catch fire, right? So this, they probably heard this and there was a little bit of humor in it. And Jesus is saying, how silly would this be for you to cover up the light? But I think it would be problematic for us to just speak of covering up the light with, without speaking to, well, how do we do that? How is it that you and I cover up the light in our lives? I think one is fear. We're afraid. We don't want to share our faith and be turned down. We don't, we don't want to be the one in the room in the business meeting who speaks out against an ethical decision and everyone else is saying, but this is a great way to make money. We don't want to be the one person who's always raining on the parade. We don't want to be, we're afraid. Most of us are, not all of us. Some of us need to be more afraid <laughs> in certain things, okay? Another is insecurity which is largely could be described in many of the same ways that I just shared. Or we're insecure that we might not have all the answers. Well, what if they ask about, what if they ask about the problem of evil? What if they ask, what if they quote Aristotle to me and I can't respond, you know? But insecurity is something that I think we allow to cover the light of Christ in our lives. Another one would be conformity, of course where there might be no distinction between us and the world at all, 
where we just blend in and we never confront and we never speak up and we never proclaim, we never act in ways that are contrary to those of the world. I mean, guys, look at the life of Christ. He was constantly being approached by others because of how strong his actions and his words were. Of course, I don't think, I'm not, yeah, let me, let me be careful with that because some of us are just ready to be let loose with strong language. And uh, notice that Jesus is strong. Jesus was the son of God, okay? All right, so, so how do we preserve our, the salt and light metaphors? How do we preserve them faithfully? And I think one of the answers is to look at the Beatitudes, which we're not gonna spend much time, but right before this, who are the kind of people that Jesus is now calling salt and light in the earth? Are these the rich and the powerful and those in positions of authority? I mean, think about how dramatic it is to hear that God, that Jesus would speak to those who are mourning, those who could not exert mercy, but who exert mercy, those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, those who are persecuted is the last one for his sake, that those are the people whose lives are called salt and light in the earth. It's not those who ascend to power and coerce or manipulate or dominate. It's those who work from below and display the character of Christ. Here's something that I, I bet most of us in the room have never thought about. It's easy to think about the Beatitudes as an arbitrary list of things that are good in the kingdom. But look at the Beatitudes like this. They describe the very life of Christ. The Beatitudes describe the life of Christ. The first four of the Beatitudes describe a lack, an emptiness. And the, the latter four of the Beatitudes describe what these people who are called blessed and what Christ did with his fullness. With fullness, what did he do? Dominate? No. Judge? He will judge in the end, but no, he exerted mercy and grace and forgiveness. And these are the kinds of people who Jesus says, you are my salt and you are the light of the world. I mean, that should be humbling and so empowering for us that we don't have to always rise in the systems of this world to really influence it. That we don't have to gain strong positions of worldly power and then try and use them for God. Yes, certainly that can happen and certainly God works in those ways. But that is not what's required of us or even asked of us. What is asked of us is to be faithfully salt and light where you are with those who are around you. So the second half of this passage that we read moves into Jesus talking about the law and the prophets and it might seem really, really out of place. But I think it, that we need to remember that Matthew's call, Matthew's vision is to continually draw back on the Jewish faith. He's not trying to create discontinuity. He's trying to create continuity with the Jewish faith and say, guys, this is not new. You've just misunderstood it. Jesus is not coming and revealing something brand new. Oh, love your enemies. We've never heard that before. Oh, love your neighbor. Take care of the poor. Oh, we've never heard that before. No, these are the things that were taught from the beginning, but they kept getting them wrong and they kept getting them wrong. So 
Matthew is drawing continuity with the Jewish faith, with the Torah, with the law and the prophets. And he's saying, guys, this is not new, but you need to see it newly. You need to see it differently. You need to engage these things you've been doing, obeying the Sabbath, not murdering, not committing adultery, not coveting, but you need to go even the extra mile. And that's what happens right after this, right? Where Jesus goes through murder, he goes through adultery, he goes through all of these, not all 10, but he goes through a number of the commandments and the things that the Jewish people had believed. And he says, you've believed them and you've done them on the surface. You've not gone near far enough. When the spirit of Christ is inside you, you, don't know, you not only don't murder, but you release anger and trade it in for forgiveness. I mean, this was radical, So this, I think, is why this little part of the passage is here, because Jesus is revealing the kind of people that he's called and what kind of people he's calling them to be. Righteousness. Let's talk about righteousness here. I want to read this verse over again, the last couple of verses here. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, great. So the Pharisees are feeling pretty good about themselves because they've been teaching these things. They're doing well, right? For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Not doing so great. (laughs) Not doing so great anymore. And before we rag on the Pharisees, we have to remember there's much more in us that is like them that is probably unlike them. But Jesus is trying to not condemn them, but reveal things that he desires to heal and to change for the sake of the world. There is this talk about your righteousness surpassing the righteousness of the Pharisees. And a number of commentators, basically, they take what Paul uses as righteousness and they, they draw it into this passage. And, they, and that is that Paul speaks to righteousness not as outward acts, but at, as a righteousness that is imputed, meaning it is stamped on, it is brought in from the outside onto the tablets of our hearts. And while that is true, of course that is true, I don't think that's what Matthew is speaking about because he doesn't really use any kind of language like that throughout the entire book of Matthew. What kind of language does Matthew use and what does he speak about? Well, technically righteousness means right actions. I mean, that's technically what it means. And I think that a definition we could draw into this passage that the author of this passage would intend is right conduct and action flowing from within that leads to restored relations with God and man. Restored relations with God and man, okay? Well, for one, this is one of the pinnacle objectives of Jesus, right? To restore relationship with God and man. That is what Christ does, But also, this is exactly what the Pharisees don't do and are constantly accused of it. They're so absorbed with their own self-righteousness that they could care less about anyone else doing anything for anyone else if it's not what is exactly written in the Torah. You remember the story about Jesus and the disciples walking through on the Sabbath and they're starving, 
So some of the disciples break off heads of grain and they eat it. And the Pharisees are right there to condemn them. And Jesus is saying, you guys haven't understood this. The laws are for man. Man is not here to serve the law. I am the Lord of the Sabbath because all of God's law and all of command, all of his commands are given to us to serve this purpose, to spur us on toward right actions flowing from within that restore relationships between God and men, which means we have to be concerned about other men and women, of course, speaking of, of men as humanity, that we, we are called, put that last verse up, Caitlin, if you don't mind, verse 20 that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, I think this is what Matthew's getting at, that the Pharisees' righteousness was a self-righteousness. It was a, a lack of concern for anyone that was not them because they were so consumed with doing everything legalistically and perfectly. And I think what Jesus is saying here is none of that matters if it doesn't spill over into the world if it doesn't affect the way that we treat our neighbor, if it doesn't affect our enemies, if it doesn't affect the people around us, it doesn't matter. So let's turn to another passage that's in the lectionary for today, and we're gonna close here. Isaiah chapter 58, we're gonna read, I'm gonna read the second half of verse two, and we're gonna read four or five verses together. <clears throat> so this is, of course, the prophet Isaiah writing to the Jewish people. They ask me for just decisions and seem, this is key language, and seem eager for God to come near to them. Seem near, eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast? A day acceptable, acceptable to the Lord? Is not this kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see them naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. And then last verse eight, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. What is he saying? Essentially, he's saying that until our spiritual disciplines bleed over into the world and affect those who need it most, they don't matter to God. That until our disciplines, until our quiet time, until the things that we're so concerned with affect the people who need God most, he doesn't wanna hear it. I didn't say this, by the way. Isaiah said it, and Amos says it, and Malachi says it. Need I keep going? This is one of the reasons that Matthew is drawing on the continuity. He's drawing a line from the law through the prophets to Jesus. He's saying, this is not new. 
This is what you've always been told. You just didn't have ears to hear it. Or you just didn't want your ears to hear it because it could affect your relationship with God. Then you're forced to be opened up to more people. Then your private relationship with God is now open. Your heart is expanded to draw in more people. And that's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to be disrupted. I... I hate being disrupted and I have a toddler. I hate being disrupted and I work at a church. (laughs) Guys, I'm preaching to myself as much as I am preaching to you. I really, really am this morning. I hope that my fire hits me harder than it hits you because I need to hear this. So what does this call to be salt and light mean for us? I'm gonna wrap this up briefly. Number one, it means that there is a real distinction between the church and the world, which is for the sake of preserving and bringing healing to the world. That there is a real distinction, that, we are, that there, there is a way of living the Christian faith where there is no distinction. And that is not what we are called to. We are called to a way of living the Christian faith, of following Jesus in ways that do distinguish us from the world, but not in ways that heap condemnation on the world, ways that bring healing and restoration to the world. And number two, I believe that what this means for us is that we are called to a public work, not a private work. Now, I wanna clarify here, this doesn't mean that God does not have a personal relationship for, with each and every one of us and that God does not care personally for each and every one of us. But there is a huge difference between the word personal and private and that there is nothing in our spirituality that is called to be private. It is personal, it is intimate. We believe that when we come into this place and when we sing and when we hear preaching and when we pray and when we come to this table, that Jesus cares about every one of us, that he looks at you and speaks your name, that this is his body and his blood for you, every one of you. But it's not private, meaning it's not just for you. It's for you so that when you turn back from this place back into the world, that you have bread to give. You receive, and it is nourishment to your body. It is nourishment to your spirit. It is daily bread for us. But just like the original promise to Abraham is, I have called you out to be a blessing so that this nation will be a blessing to all the world. Communion attendants, if you would come, let's prepare our hearts to come to the table. Sorry, I'm gonna take a sip real quick. Aaron, if you would come and play. Church, I hope that we can hear this as good news today because if the gospel is not good news, then it's not the gospel. But sometimes good news means we're called to be uncomfortable, that we're called to be provoked and convicted and pushed beyond what is comfortable for us. And Antioch Church, as much as we do love the charismatic expression and we love soaking in prayer and worship, if it doesn't touch this community around us, then I fear, I fear that God would ever respond to us like he did to his people in Isaiah 58. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I want God to be pleased with our righteousness, 
for our righteousness to go so far beyond self-righteousness that there are times when we even forget, oh, that our private time is supposed to be benefiting us. I pray that we are so nourished in the way that we minister to the world, in the way that we interact with the people around us, in the way that we meet needs around us, that sometimes we even forget, oh my goodness, it hasn't just been me and Jesus. <laughs> that it's been me and Jesus and those who Jesus calls to us. Okay? So if you would. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.